Hey, y'all. Thanks for coming. I see a lot of you from over there at uh, Cornish Pasty. That was a good time. At least I hope it was a good time for you. I had a good time. Um, super happy to be here with you. It's, it's always fun to come home because mom is here. And uh, so, so I always actually come to the Poison Pen more than any other independent bookstore uh, around. But it is, seriously, I've, I've been to independent bookstores, y'all, and this is one of the best in the country. You're really fortunate to have this store here. And um, I can tell you that if you're not necessarily into mystery yet, this is a great place to come and just say, tell, you know, Give me a book that I might like. You tell them what kind of stuff you like and they'll find something for you. It's a really knowledgeable staff and uh, they've introduced me to a lot of great books that way. And um, same thing with, you know, if you want suggestions in fantasy, they can hook you up with that too. I'm gonna give you a couple before we, I'm not sure if we're starting yet or not, but in terms of what Facebook wants, but um, a couple of uh, great epic fantasy stuff that you might wanna try. Uh, the 10,000 Doors of January by Alex Harrow. It's fantastic. It'll make you feel feelings. Uh, also, The Bone Shard Daughter by Andrea Stewart is the first book of the Drowned Empire trilogy, and that is a complete trilogy. Completed trilogies are great, you know? Because some trilogies never finish. So it's great when you when you find a, you know something where you could just kind of dive in and go start to finish and, and binge it, you know? So, and that's really what this series is kind of intended for. So are we, are we live yet or no? Hi, everybody on Facebook, maybe. I have no idea. We're on? We are? Awesome. Thanks, Patrick. Hi, everybody on Facebook. Uh, it's great to see you or not see you. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to point out, I wanted to introduce somebody really special to you guys. In the front of Tricked, there's a dedication to Alan O'Brien, who stood in front of my word vomit and told me to clean it up. That's what it says here. Okay, Alan is here. Hey, it's Alan. I owe Alan a deep debt of gratitude because he did. Uh, he read all of this, all of these books first before anybody else did, and gave me some feedback on it. He thinks really differently than I do. He's a math teacher, and I am not. And and so he he spots logical inconsistencies and things like that that I would completely miss. And it's just super helpful when I was trying to figure things out on you know how to write novels. So um, I'm deeply grateful to Alan forever. And of course, I don't know if, if any of you follow me on um, social media, you might have seen a picture of a little miniature of Atticus that's really exquisitely painted. Alan did that. He is a uh, he is a champion miniature painter. He's actually gets awards for it. So um, yeah, I, I play D and D with him or Warhammer actually, all that kind of stuff. He is a lot of fun. So um, I'm so glad he's here tonight, and uh, a whole bunch of you too because I've, I've seen you, some of you here before. So thank you for coming out again. Um, I do want to talk about a few Iron Druid doodads before I get to the Seven Kennings, because um, I imagine some of you are Iron Druid readers. So, <laughs> yeah. So um, these particular editions that you see here um, are newish. They came out last year. And the reason why you might be interested in them, even though you might have you know, read the originals, is that uh, these have been revised, expanded, and have bonus material in them. Like the novellas that used to be like published separately are now in the back of these books, and they're in order. So you can think of this as like the director's cut, you know? So you get new artwork, and it, the artwork features um, actual stuff from the books rather than just being Atticus, you know? The, the original covers just ha always had Atticus on the cover and that was it. 
But these have things like, here's hell, you know, with their half hot, half not face. And, uh, you know, we've got some uh, other little goodies, you know, all around the edges. And every single book has something like that going on. Um, and then, of course, yeah, the, you've got the, the novellas in the back. Also, there's, there's brand new stuff that doesn't appear anywhere else. Like Oberon's Religion for Dogs, the Dead Flea Scrolls, is in the back of one of the books, the later books. Um, also, the Book of Five Meats, the, you know, his recipes and how he's going to break down, you know, the, the categories of meat in the world. So uh, stuff like that. So I, th I think uh, you guys would really enjoy it. Uh, we put Besieged in there as book nine. It's a, because it is a, a book of short stories that really is necessary to kind of read before you get into the last book. Uh, you, you would miss some important stuff if you didn't read it. So uh, yeah, give those a shot. I'm happy to sign, of course, everything and anything uh, tonight that you want to bring up. I'll even sign other people's books. I don't care. <laughs> That's fine. So... Um, Besides this, like what's coming up? Um, right now, I am writing Candle and Crow, which is the third Ink and Sigil book, and it will wrap up both Ink and Sigil and, and also the remainder of the Iron Druid stuff. Like you're going to see everybody. Granuel's going to show up. Owen's going to show up. Leif Helgerson's going to show up. I mean, we're going to see everybody, you know, right at the end there. But um, we're also going to find out, you know, what is Gladys, who has seen some shite, been waiting to see? <laughs> and uh, also I wanted to tell you that if, if you were interested in her origin story, I did write that. It's called Gladys and the Whale. Um, that name was given to her and she accepted it and kept it. So if you want to hear where that came from, what, what was going on, it is, thanks Lee, how convenient. It is in this particular book called Unbound 2. It is an anthology of all kinds of stuff. It's available in hardcover. It's also available in ebook and audio. The audio was done by this wonderful lady that I chose to do it because it's Gladys narrating it. You don't, you don't want Luke Daniels to do it. So um, anyway, it's all available if you would like to see that. It's in Unbound 2, okay? Um, anyway, Candle and Crow is going to be out next year, October 1st. So, yay. You're going to love it. Same time for next year for here, yeah. Um, it'll be that week, you know what I mean? How so, close are you? I'm very close. I'm not done yet, but I have until the end of the year to finish it. So I'm going to get home and get, keep going. Um, but in, before that, you have two more things coming from me before next October. One is a brand new Oberon's Meaty Mystery that is going to be uh, set in between Paper and Blood and Candle and Crow. So if you've read Paper and Blood, you could go right into this. It, it happens right after they leave um, uh, Australia and go back to Tasmania. So that, that, that little story happens. It's called The Chartreuse Chanteuse. That's the novella. But uh, it, it is going to be in a collection of three novellas with Delilah and Chuck. And it's called Canines and Cocktails. So that's what you would look for if you're going to search for it. It's Canines and Cocktails. And it, every one of us has a story where we have a dog and a drink in there. So you should enjoy the heck out of it. Uh, Chuck is writing about Gumball from Wayward. And Delilah is writing about a pit bull named Peach Pit. So, uh, and the cover is already, it's on, it's on my Instagram. I'll have it on my website again soon so you can see it. Uh, very cute. Uh, Oberon and Starbuck are on there. So I hope you guys will enjoy that. It should be coming out January or... February of next year, so not very long at all, okay? So after that, I have another thing coming out. <laughs> it's called The Hermit Next Door. It is a science fiction novella from Subterranean Press. 
So that will have, um, yeah, that'll have ebook hardcover. The hardcover is like a limited edition, signed and numbered kind of thing. And uh, it's gonna be narrated by Mary Robinette Koa. And um, if you wanna see some of my, or hear, or whatever, read my previous science fiction novella, it's called A Question of Navigation. That's available now. Audio is done by Luke Daniels. It's out there. I think you guys would enjoy it. Check it out. So there you go. That's, that's what I have coming to you next year. You have two novellas for me at the front end and then Candle and Crow uh, in October. Okay? All right. I think, I, I think that's my housekeeping. Okay? So now, now I can talk about this stuff, which is why I came here tonight. Um, this is, uh, The Seven Kennings is the trilogy that I always wanted to write. It's the thing I always wanted to accomplish as a writer. It was the mountain I wanted to climb, and I finally did it. Um, it, it took a while because it's a very complicated thing. It's, as far as I know, nobody's ever done it before. I might be wrong, but I, I don't believe anybody has ever written an epic fantasy with 22 different first-person points of view. I've, I've heard about a lot of points of view in epic fantasy before, but not first-person. It's always third-person, right? So um, this was a challenge structurally because it just hadn't been done before. It took a lot of edits in the front end, especially for Plague of Giants, but I got the hang of it. <laughs> and uh, I, I also was trying to do a bunch of other things with epic fantasy that I hadn't seen a lot of because I want to contribute something new to the genre. So um, one of the things that we have going on here is that it's anti-monarchist and... Um, anti-colonial, you know, which is not a unique thing or anything, but it's just you don't see as much of it. Um, a lot of epic fantasy happens to be pro-monarchy. Even, you know, like it, Tolkien started that whole thing, right? We got the return of the king, okay? Now, I don't care what, how great of a guy Aragorn is, monarchy still sucks for 99% of the people living underneath it, right? So it, it's, it's a really terrible system of government, and it exploits the heck out of people. So why we, knowing that as we do now, <laughs> why do we want to continue to write epic fantasies where monarchies are the famous, you know, the, the, the featured government? So there is a monarchy in the Seven Kennings, but there's only one, and it's on its way out. And the, one of the big questions is, how do we replace that? What else can we do? How do we re-envision a world where we can make different choices? What if, what is the government going to look like if you're, the choice that you're making to start with is that nobody should be unhoused? If you're gonna start with that proposition that there should be no homeless people whatsoever, how do you build a government to make sure that happens? And then what is, what is the rest of that society gonna look like afterward? Are you gonna have less crime because there's basic needs are met? All this kind of stuff you get to think about. So um, that's one of the things that I wanted to do. We have a progressive revolution instead of sort of a, uh, a, a retrograde or whatever, uh, a regressive uh, revolution. Um, and that's a somewhat unique thing that you see in epic fantasy. Um, I also have characters that aren't necessarily world leaders. There's no chosen one narrative. There's no hero's journey. Um, it is a very different uh, tale because we have sort of regular people being involved, in, you know, swept up in unusual circumstances and figuring out how to deal with it. And um, I, I really like that part where I didn't have any leaders except for a couple of the bad guys. The bad guys are really hard to write, by the way, because you have to kind of get in this headspace of, how can I be evil to somebody today? <laughs> and, uh, and they think they're justified in doing it, you know, right? And that's, that's the really especially hard part. But um, 
even though that that part was difficult to write, I really enjoyed Hanuma, for example. She was a blast to write. And probably my favorite new character in this series uh, is in this book, the very first chapter of this book. Her name is Penyas Ben Min. She was introduced in Plague of Giants. She was the uh, cousin of Nelkit Ben Sa. She was the one who got, uh, she became a new Greensleeve at the beginning of A Plague of Giants. Okay, so she is now a narrator in A Curse of Krakens. And she just kind of became my favorite. Hey, we have some seats right up here if you'd like. Uh, thanks for coming. Anyway, um, she winds up having a lot of, uh, she, she's a fan of an epic poet named Nat Half Benzon. And I get to write some of that poetry in here. So that was a blast for me. Like I, I get to write portions of an epic and just leave the impression of this entire other work of literature that lives within mine. Then, of course, we have the character Derek Dulongren, who is famous in his time for writing a book of cock sonnets. And uh, I'm like, well, I can't leave the series without ever writing one of those. <laughs> so I actually wrote one, and that was a fun to write, too. Um, so enjoy when you get there, but maybe don't share it with your kids. <laughs> so anyway, this, this was such an interesting series to try to figure out how to market and so on, because when you have this many characters, you know, marketing departments are usually focused on one character or two or three, right? And, and that's what they wound up doing. Like, this is all we know how to do. So we're going to give you three characters on the back, even though there's 11 in A Plague of Giants and there's 12 in this one. So we're just going to give you three characters and then we're only going to give you one character on the cover, even though there's all these different characters to choose from. Um, but I, what I would encourage you or, or ask you to do is if you guys wind up liking it, please tell folks, <laughs> it, you know, it, Try to explain it. You'll see how hard it is to market it. It's a really weird book to try to explain to other folks, but people get into it hardcore, which I'm very grateful for. This one guy um, emailed me from Ohio, and it, just last night he emailed me. He's like, I'm about halfway through, and I've already cried thrice. <laughs> so first I had to give him props for using thrice. But uh, second, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, you got some more to go, man, because you're only halfway through. So, um, and, and then I, you know, I was like, mom, I made a guy cry. And she's like, good job, son. <laughs> she didn't really do that, but uh, anyway, uh, it, yes, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I, I do hope you guys enjoyed the heck out of it. It, it was uh, a lot of fun for me to do, especially the maps. Did you guys know there's maps? Yep. Okay. So the map is on the end sheet and uh, I did it. I used to be an art major for two whole years and now all I get to do with it is make maps. Um, and then uh, there's another map on the interior as well of the city that they go uh, to check out. And uh, that was a blast for me to do as well. Uh, if you guys ever read Kill the Farm Boy, which they have copies of back there, I believe, the map in that is probably my favorite thing I've ever done because it's hilarious. Delight the Kill the Farm Boy, by the way, is just this short segue. This is serious epic fantasy. Kill the Farm Boy is taking epic fantasy tropes like the Chosen One and just tearing them down lovingly, making fun of them. So a lot of times the Chosen One is a farm boy who gets told by some old guy, you're really important. You don't know it, but you are. And you have a special destiny. It's a white male power fantasy is what it is, right? So we thought, hey, what if we take that, we kill that dude, because boy, he's annoying. If you don't believe me, listen to Luke Skywalker in the first Star Wars. 
I was gonna go to Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. Can you whine anymore? <laughs> so that that kind of thing, if you get rid of that whiny guy and let all of the characters in the background become the foreground, what kind of story do you get? That's what Kill the Farm Boy is. is that, or, or think of it as a D&D &D party where they keep rolling critical fails. <laughs> but, but still, you know, kind of come out on top somehow. So that, that, that's a, a very fun thing. Uh, Delilah and I had the, a blast writing it together. The elves live in the morning wood. Uh, and, and then... So right outside of it is a little city. I'm like, okay, well, if she's going to call this the morning with, I got to, you know, it was a little bit of a competition. We're kind of one-upping each other, you know, all the time. So she names this place the morning wood. I'm like, okay, well, there's a hunting camp right outside of it called Four Skins. Four Skins. So that map is a blast. You guys got to check it out, okay? Even if you don't buy the book, just check out that map back there and, and enjoy the heck out of it. And Luke Daniels, by the way, does the audio for all of those too, the Tales of Hell, and he does a great job, of course. So back to this. Um, I, this is Koshigansu on here. And uh, we had to pick somebody to be on the cover of each one of these. Uh, Abi Kosa is, the, is on the second cover. It's Goran Mogan on the first one. And... Um, her, her tale is really about just trying to get back home again. And uh, she, she is concerned about the safety of her crew, uh, but she also has a lot of other personal issues to work through. And she just seemed kind of the best choice, uh, her particular arc, um, because uh, when you see who she meets, everybody's, every, so far the, all the feedback I'm getting is my, my mind melted on day 52. So there you go. So yes, all right, there you go. So uh, somebody has already gotten that far. Without spoilers, just be prepared. You know, uh, ha have some tissue nearby or whatever, and uh, enjoy. But K Kosha is part of that whole thing, and so she seemed to be the kind of the best choice uh, for the cover of this particular book. But gosh, you could pick any of them and say they're just as important. Pen could have been the, the cover or whatever. So um, I hope you guys dig it. And uh, it, it is again my my the favorite thing I've ever done. I'm always going to be proud of it. Uh, of course, I'm proud of my other work too. But this is why I became a writer. And um, I'm glad I finally got it done. So thank you for reading it. Thank you for telling other people to read it. I really, really super appreciate it. So uh, I, the rest of this program is me answering your questions because I want to make sure that you get out of here without, you know, with something besides my signature. Because <laughs> just signatures are boring. So uh, yeah, let's, let's have whatever questions about whatever series you would like. Um, I'm, I'm happy to answer anything. And, and I, I, I tend to, to ramble. It's always fun. And I'm going to be running around with the microphone. So oh, yeah, yeah. That's great. Facebook Perfect. can hear you. Yeah. OK. Yeah, he. <laughs> OK, so my favorite thing about this series is how you create idioms for all the cultures. That, so I want to know what your favorite one is. The favorite idiom? Okay, well, the most fun and the, the sort of the easiest and also the most fun for me to write was the one from for the Fornish, the the one the folks who have the fifth kenning, the plants. Uh, you know, when Nelket Bensaw gets in an argument with that guy and says, you have no nuts in your shell. I mean, I just, things like that are kind of fun, right? So, yes. Yeah, I, I pretty much did. Whatever I, I got to do some kind of fun thing like that. Uh, but they were a lot of fun. Not just uh, Nell, but, um, you know, the ambassador, my bet, Ken. And then Pena Spinman is going to be doing a lot of that, too. Um, so, yeah, I really liked those particular idioms. They were, they were a lot of fun. And that was a key part of making every character sound different and not like me. 
So thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. Any other? Yes. What was your favorite creature to create? They were all so, they've all been so fun. Meet squirrels and such. Okay. And also I, um, I now sit, call people shit snakes. So thanks for Shit that. snakes. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> well, the grave mall was a lot of fun for me because um, I liked not only the fact that it's just sort of eating killing machine, but that it has a very complex um, mating structure, <laughs> you know, that there's three of them involved in the process, that there's a male, a female, and a non-binary part to the whole thing, and they lay eggs. And like what? So, so that part was really fun for me to to really think about differences in biology, weird evolution, and stuff like that. And the reason things are so weird, like why do we have horses, but then also kerns, and then why do we have oxen, and then we have wart oxen, yaks, and thunder yaks? What's going on there? There's a reason for it that you'll get to. Um, so, but but the grave moths were were a particularly fun invention. And um, I like to think about weird critters because, uh, part of, partly because of Star Wars. Star Wars would all, often give you a weird critter, and then I would get mad because it would make no sense for that critter to exist. I want there to be an ecology that makes sense, like those salt crystal foxes, right? They're, if they're foxes, then they're predators. But if you got a planet full of salt, there's no vegetation. And without vegetation, you don't have herbivores for the foxes to eat. What the hell are those foxes eating? That makes, they, they shouldn't exist, right? So that, that, that's, that's me going, okay, yes, pew, 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 but why is that fox there? Right? right? So that, I, I take myself out sometimes of those things, you know? Um, I found that the one, the one thing that, that made me mad before that one was that big giant asteroid space worm that swallows the Millennium Falcon and Empire Strikes Back. I'm like, what? That thing is huge. Think about the calories that you need to consume to make that thing work in space. What's going on there? So somebody wound up writing a story explaining what it eats. It's energy. So it was going to eat the energy of the, of the Millennium Falcon. It would have been very tasty. But I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> it's going to eat energy stuff. Eating spaceships makes sense now. But yeah, it was not there to eat meat. It was often after the energy stuff. So anyway, um, Things like that I really dig. So when I got to write my Star Wars uh, novel, I, I had these creatures that would bore into your skull, and then there was a whole set of creatures that had evolved defenses against somebody landing on their head and trying to drill into their skull. They had horns and all kinds of other obstacles that they had evolved to try to defend themselves against it. So, yeah, that's that's the... That wound up, you know, being a part of the Seven Kennings. I, I really enjoyed coming up with the creatures because I've always liked the ideas of... Uh, well, ecological niches and how do you fill those in? So, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Could Hannah you... Rose, what's up? Hi. Uh, could you explain how you and Luke Daniels came to work together and what your relationship is like? It was an accident at first because it was a random thing. Uh, they, the first contract uh, was way back when, 2010. And the books didn't come out till 2011, but they signed me up for the audiobook contract in 2010. And at that time, 
audiobooks were not that big a deal. In fact, my only experience with audiobooks was an English teacher punishing kids by playing somebody really boring, you know, reading a book to them. You know what I mean? It, they didn't have like professional actors doing it and stuff like that. Like Luke. Luke is a professionally trained theater actor. He is specializing in Shakespeare. He still does Shakespeare every so often. He'll he'll be in a production or whatever. So he's an incredible actor, period, and he's able to bring all of that alive in his audio performances, right? So, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that that's where audiobooks were going. I thought I would never make that money back that they were giving me. I'm like, I'm never going to earn this out. <laughs> I was wrong, super wrong. Audiobooks became super popular, and Luke Daniels was a big part of that, honestly, because he's so dang talented. So I now actually sell more audiobooks than I do print or ebook. So that's the majority of my audio. How many, how many of you here listen to my audiobooks? See? So, so that, that's, that's what it is. is that it's, it's just a, a fascinating thing, and it's come on in the past decade or so. And I will point out that there is a correlation. I'm not going to say causation because I'll get in trouble with Alan. But there is a correlation between the rise of the popularity of audiobooks and a decrease in the number of road rage incidents. People don't care about getting stuck in traffic anymore because they got a cool-ass audiobook to listen to. They're like, I don't care if that guy cut me off. What's in I got, I'm on chapter five. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, thank you for that. Did I answer your question okay? Uh, what we do now, though, is like all I do is, is I read every single name so that he knows how to pronounce it correctly. And I, I record that and send it to him before he records the book. So that's, that's all we do, yeah. Awesome question. Next. Yeah. Okay. I, here, yeah. I, I want to follow up on that. Sure. How much of the book is you writing stuff, giggling, thinking that Luke Daniels is going to have to read this? <laughs> okay. I think it's in Shattered that Granuel has to run across Poland. Poland has a fantastic language, and they've got some cities that are pretty much all continents. <laughs> And I, I could have picked one that was easy to pronounce, but I didn't. I, I purposely picked Bidgoszcz, which you have to say shh, and then shh, like, like what? Like, it almost like sounds like you're trying to sneeze and failing. All right? So that is a, an awesome town, and I actually have a few readers there who are like, I can't believe you picked Bidgoszcz for, you know, yes. I did that just to mess with Luke. So, and, and he knew it, too. He came across as like, God damn it, Kevin. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, over on the Schwarzenegger stuff, yeah. Uh, I did a whole bunch of things to basically to mess around with Luke, and it's a lot of fun. So, he knows that I, he's like, bring it on, come on, I need a challenge. So, he, he's very cool about it. So, thank you. And we, uh, we had a fellow right up here at front who had, who had a question. We got to do the microphone thing so the folks at Facebook can hear. So this question kind of ties in the trilogy of Luke Daniel questions. Um, sure. How how much like uh, of the voices that Luke Daniels create is his training versus how you imagine the characters? Well, it's pretty much all him. I don't tell him how to perform. I wouldn't. I would never. You know. I mean, because he knows better than I do how to put in a great performance. So um, I I will tell you that his voice for Oberon is nothing like what I hear in my head when I'm writing it. And that's fine because I don't have that expectation. He shouldn't, I, I shouldn't want him to sound like what I have in my head. Just like if you're reading a book, right? 
I have no control over what voices you hear when you read it, right? So, so I would not want to control what voices he hears when he reads it. You know what I mean? So it, it is just all a, a different medium or an, an interpretation. Every time uh, somebody picks up a book and reads it, that's a different in interpretation of what I wrote, and it's all good. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't give him any coaching whatsoever on that kind of stuff. So, Kevin, I'm just curious in terms of the uh, sort of the meanness of being on book tour. How many months has it been since you finished A Curse of Krakens to the point that it got to publication? Oh, I, yeah, this was done a year ago. So, yeah, it's usually about a year. It's not always that that way, but it's usually a year from the time you finish writing a book to when it gets on the shelf. So this is why I'm saying, like, I'm, I'm about done with Candle and Crow. I'm going to finish it up by the end of the year, this year, but it'll be out in October of next year. It takes that long for them to go through the editing process, get review copies printed, sent out, give the reviewers time to review. Then you send catalogs out to libraries and bookstores so that they will order them. You know, it's just a long process uh, before you actually see the book on the shelf. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. And then they take you on tour asking you to remember everything about <laughs> what you read, wrote a year ago. Yeah, yeah. Not, sometimes I don't. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, yeah, any other questions from you all? Maybe this is just a naive question because I'm not a writer, but you describe Arizona very well, and I think we all know why, but Poland, all the other locations, what's your research like? Do you visit any of these places, and do you get feedback from people other than they like that you pick their city, but are you know yeah. how accurate are you? Yeah, I, I uh, okay, so in Hunted, I had to do a run across Germany, and I couldn't do that. I couldn't run across Germany. So um, I, I basically asked people who live there for details. Google Maps can help a little bit, hmm, but you can't really. For Paper and Blood, um, I was scheduled to go and scout everything out in Australia, but I was writing that when the pandemic hit. I actually had it, I had tickets to go to Australia in April of 2020 for scouting for Paper and Blood. But, I mean, I really could not go because they shut down all flights at that time. So um, I still have a credit that I'm never going to use, right? They won't refund my money. They're just like, you, well, you'll fly here someday. And I'm like, no, I won't. That book has been written. So what I did is um, to, I, I had another author help me out. Her name is Amy Kaufman. She's a YA author. Fantastic. She's written incredibly great stuff. Um, so anyway, she happens to be a fan of the Iron Druid Chronicles. So I'm like, can you help me out with this, Amy? And she's like, heck yeah. But with a charming Australian accent. Heck yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, what she did is I told her where I kind of needed to go. And she went out and took the hike and stuff that in Paper and Blood that I was going to do. And then she uh, took video of what it all looked like for me and narrated, like, here's what I'm hearing. Because phone microphones are crap, right? So you're not going to hear the ambient sound very well. So here's what I'm hearing. Here's what I'm smelling. Here's what the air feels like. She knew what to tell me because she's a writer herself. So it was fantastic. One of the things I learned is like, I'm not going to go over there, Kevin, because that's probably got a brown snake and I will die. So, I mean, I'm like, I did not know that. Thank you. You know? And then like, she was telling me about this subway station. Oh, this escalator down right here is the longest one in the Southern hemisphere. I'm like, well, that's weird, but thank you. So, so yeah, I, I, just little trivia, like you would never get. If I, if I just saw that there was a subway station there on Google Maps, I would never know that this is the longest escalator down. So, so yeah, I, I love that, uh, that help that she gave me. So I get that when I can't go myself. 
Uh, otherwise, I do try to visit. So I had visited Poland. Um, I did wind up visiting Germany later um, for staked. I went to Rome, and this is a kind of fun story because I had to figure out where the vampires were for staked, right? And I don't know where the vampires are going to be in Rome, so I had to get a guide to help me out. So this travel agency said, we can hook you up with a personal tour guide to help you figure this out. Okay, so she gets on the phone with me to, to discuss my personal tour coming up. Totally sweet lady, right? And she's got a, she's a, an archaeologist. She actually could tell you everything about Rome, like eight layers deep, okay? But she knows all the stuff, but she's also dealt with a lot of tourists. So she says, so I'm assuming you're going to want to go to the Vatican. I'm like, nope, that's not where the vampires are. She's like, what? <laughs> and, and so, so then I had to explain to her, I'm not a typical tourist. I'm an author who's looking for a very specific thing. I need to know where the vampires would be in Rome in, in such a way that, you know, they'd be able to prey on tourists fairly easily and not get caught and all that kind of stuff. She's like, okay. Um... <laughs> I'm going to need to call you back. And, and so, so, so she did, but this is very sweet. I didn't know why. I'm just like, okay, I just must be super weird. And I am. But she was like, no, no, no. She's super Catholic. So she wanted to make sure that helping me wouldn't be a sin. She went and talked to her priest, got permission to help out the crazy American guy with his vampire novel. So she got it. This would not be a sin. And then once she got that permission, she's like, I'm in. Let's go. Let's do it. So, so she took me around to all these different sites. They were super cool, but it was the last place we visited, because that's the way it always goes, right, that I wound up picking. And it was the Spanish Steps. And right across from the Spanish Steps are these, like, super high-end retail places like Gucci and so on. But above them are apartments that go for, like, a million euros just to look in their direction, you know? They're, they're, and it, they used to be a super poor area of Rome. That's where John Keats went, right? He was a poet, he made no money, and he's, <laughs> he died there right next to the Spanish steps of tuberculosis at the age of 25, right? So you could go in and see where John Keats died, and Percy Bysshe Shelley was there as well, and they used to eat in the pubs there, so like famous English poet asses had once sat in those places, um, but uh, it was the poor side of town back then. Now it's one of the richest parts of Rome. So these rooftop um, apartments that go for millions of euros, I'm like, that's where the vampires would be because, of course, all the tourists are here. There's these little narrow alleyways. They could just snatch somebody, and that'd be it. So, yeah, that's, that's why scouting is so fun. Thank you. Yes. Made me, made me wonder what is your preferred method of reading? Oh, okay. See, I like I like a hardback because yeah. I grew up on science fiction where all the books were burned, yeah. and I have a horror of books being gone for, yeah. from when I was a teenager. Yeah, so. I got you. Um, I I read paper and ink because I love the smell. <laughs> I just yeah, there's nothing like it to me, and I love the texture, the feeling of of turning the page, the little sound it makes as you turn the page. All of that is super comforting for me, and I, I, I dig the heck out of it. So I listen to a little bit of audiobooks, um, when, just what Luke is doing for me, just so that I can laugh at it, because his performance is so, even though I, like, I know what the joke is, I wrote it, I know what's coming, but the way he says it, his delivery is so funny that I still laugh. So, um, but, but, but other than that, I don't listen to audiobooks because I don't really need to, because I don't 
drive a lot. I work at home. So um, I wind up reading the old-fashioned way. Ebooks, um, I stare at a screen to write. I don't want to look at a screen to read, you know? So yeah, I do that. It's better on my eyes to do that instead of a screen. So that's why. But thank you. Yeah. Question here. If you could pick one character from the Seven Kennings to write a short story sidebar adventure for, who would it be, and and what what would be what would we be doing? That's wow. Okay, hypotheticals. Um, one character out of the Seven Kennings to write a spin-off story for. Um, that is a difficult one to do. On the one hand, it would be fun to have Gondol Ved be in a non-life-threatening situation, and that would be kind of fun. Uh, but on the other hand, I really love uh, Hanema and her journey and how she wants to continue to help people, where compassion is the only moral use of power. I, that's probably the favorite thing that I wrote for the whole trilogy. I really believe that, you know, that uh, if, if you take that to heart, then it changes the way you look at things. So... Um, I like her a lot, and then of course I love Pen Yaspin Min. But the, I I would actually try to like to write Leaf Song, so Pen Yaspin Min quotes from Leaf Song, and I have some of the quotes from Leaf Song throughout this. Every time Pen has a chapter, she's quoting from it, so you get little snippets of Leaf Song. And I'm like, it would be fun to try to actually write that whole thing. I don't know if anybody would be interested in it, but me. But I I think that would be a blast because. Sage and Sprout became kind of a favorite thing for me to write. So, yeah. Thank you. Oh, yeah? You like the Sage and Sprout stuff? Thanks, Mom. Totally unbiased opinion. Is there another part of the Star Wars universe that you would like to try and describe so that it makes you less frustrated? <laughs> no, actually, uh, what they asked me to do was to basically um, describe how Luke Skywalker grew in the force between, you know, the Death Star being blown up and the loss of Obi-Wan Kenobi and then the time he meets Yoda. Um, because when A New Hope ends, he's blown up the Death Star. Woohoo! One in a million kid. But then Empire Strikes Back starts and he's got all these powers that he didn't have before. He, he, you know, telekinesis. He can summon a lightsaber to his hand. And I remember being a kid. I was 12 years old at the time. And I'm like, how did, learn, how did he learn to do that? I didn't know they could do that. And so that was a thing that needed to be explained. And that's basically what they came and asked me to do. So I actually got to write this, the answer to a question I'd had since I was a kid. That was pretty cool. I don't have, I, yeah, heir to the Jedi. Yeah. So I don't have any other questions like that. So I'm done. <laughs> yeah. So, meaty mysteries. Yeah. Uh, surely we have to see the squirrels actually make a good run on taking over, and Oberon should have that chance to put it down, right? <laughs> right. The squirrels, man. There's something else. Um, yeah. The, the squirrel. Down with the squirrel monarchy. I like it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> kill the squirrel king. Um, so, the meaty mystery, though, is... is uh, this one particularly, I, I would say, is the happy ever after for, you know, Atticus, O'Brien, and Starbuck. They are uh, dealing with um, getting settled and, and, and figuring out that Tasmania is going to be where they're staying. And 
other stuff. But uh, yeah, the squirrel thing, maybe not so much is going to happen. But uh, uh, yeah, I think you'll be happy with this. I think it's probably the funniest one. Um, there's stuff in there that still makes me crack up. Um, even though I finished writing it a few months ago, I'm still giggling about it. So I can't wait to hear Luke say it. He's already recorded it. I haven't listened to it yet, but he's already got it done. So yeah. Uh, January or February, I don't have a, a solid date on it yet because we are just now getting into negotiations about maybe having a print edition. And so we have to kind of coordinate that date. So once I have that date, of course, I will share it on my social media and stuff like that. So thank you. Any other questions? Yes. So I'm highly biased because I work as a mental health therapist, but okay. in the first book, your practice of presence and the yeah. way that you talk about all of that in dealing with like the trauma of all of those situations. And um, it's been a minute since I've re like read the second one and I'm just curious how it carries into this. And it's kind of like your perspective and experience because all of that is actually really rooted in like mental mm -hmm. health therapy like approaches. And so it's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, so don't tell anybody. Well, we're gonna tell everybody. But... <laughs> Hi, Facebook. Um, I was actually trying to write some of those things to maybe well, it, it, of course, it helps me process some things too, right? But it, it, everybody has to deal with grief, right? And, and a lot of that's a theme running throughout the series is how do we deal with grief? There's different ways to deal with it. Um, how do we deal with trauma, of course, being slightly different sometimes or very closely intertwined? Um, and so this fella, this Kaurian fella is like, let's practice presence, which is very similar to a, a therapy or, you know, or a yeah, mindfulness that people practice today. So um, I was trying to be, you know, partly process things for myself, of course, but also to maybe sneakily help people who would never go to therapy otherwise. And then like, they'll, they'll just see this and start thinking about it. And maybe it'll work for them. And I've actually gotten emails to that effect that your books have <laughs> helped me deal with some stuff. And they never went to a therapist or anything, but they were reading books and ha ha, I got sneaky. So I'm not a professional or anything, but if I could help with a little thing like that, then yes, I want to do that. Um, and then uh, I will also say that I, I should have mentioned this earlier. I did a series of read-alongs on Instagram for the first two books that's still on my Instagram page. So if you wish to go back and check them out, what I am doing there is very explicitly going through and saying, this sentence right here is building on this theme of grief or trauma or whatever. And, and you see how they get echoed across different characters. You might have missed some of them. Um, and I just try to flesh that out for everybody to say this is actually very purposeful. It's not accidental. And then also, um, there's some Easter egg stuff in there too, every so often, you know, so I, I throw some of that stuff in there too. So you might be interested in it. It's on my Instagram. You could just look for the caption. It'll say part one, or you could search for the hashtag seven Kennings read along. So there's eight of them. It break it up four four parts for plague of giants and four parts for a blight of black wings. And, uh, I, I do my discussion first or my, I guess my lecture is weird. Uh, and then there's a question and answer from folks online. That's very, very good. And then at the end, there's a giveaway. And you could just skip that part because it's already been given away. So, but they're all just recordings of my live events. And eventually I might do one for curse of Kraken too. So yes, young man. It's kind of an odd question, that's but okay. in staked, was there actually a yellow building with green doors when you went to Rome? Yes, that that all those places are real. Um, so that the that whole building is painted yellow, 
and it's not a really attractive one either. Um, and then, yeah, there's a green door that, that exists there. Um, I bet you you could look it up on Google Maps and see it. If you look at uh, Google Maps, look for the Spanish steps, and you know how you could do those little things where you do the panoramic view? You'll see it. It's sitting there right across from the Botticelli fountain. Okay. Awesome. Yes, Tracy. Okay, this is kind of going back a little. Sure. Um, what inspired you to to bring in Starbucks? What inspired me to bring in Starbucks? Yeah. I had a little Boston Terrier named Sophie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I I mean I I get Oberon. Yeah. And and I Well, I wanted Oberon to have a little buddy. I understood why you brought in Granuel, uh, yeah. you know, Granuel's little girl. Yeah. But oh, okay. So yeah. he is actually one of your babies. Yeah, yeah. Ba based on that, a little bit, but also um, I knew that Orla and um, Oberon weren't going to stay together. But I wanted Oberon to have a buddy. So Starbucks. There you go. I didn't want Oberon to be alone. <laughs> so there you go. Great question. I think we have someone else over there. Yeah, this young man in the chair, and then somebody back there. Yeah. Um, who's the hardest character to write in the Iron Druid series? Oh, hardest one to write in the Iron Druid series. Um, probably Leaf Helgerson. He's also he was at times easy too, but he was hard because he's such a like a selfish jerk as well. You know, he's always thinking of himself, and I, that's kind of a bummer. So that was difficult for, like, what would a completely selfish narcissist do? And there you go. That's what Leaf came from. So he, he was, he's definitely all those things. He, he has a kind of a, a playful side to him, you know, that especially at first, in the first couple of books, but then you realize that he's doing all of that for his own goals, and none of it was real. So that part was tougher for me. There you go. Hope that was an okay answer. Uh, somebody else had a question? Yes. When you're not writing and when you're not touring, um, when you do have downtime to read, how often is that? And how do you pick a new book? Oh, okay. So I don't read as much as I would like to. I, I often figure out that I have to, I always feel like I have to be working, you know? But uh, in terms of what I, I pick up on, a lot of it comes from social media or what other authors are talking about. People are just talking, this book was really good. You know, we, we talk a little bit about things and then I'll, I'll see promotional materials for some of them and like, that sounds great, I'm gonna give that a shot. So I usually wanna read stuff by people that don't look like me because I already know what the white guy's perspective is. I would like to uh, grow and have empathy for other points of view and, and different ways of looking at the world. So I often wind up reading books that are written by, you know, non-white guys. So whether they're written by women or not, you know, they're, you know. So right now I'm reading uh, a wonderful novella by Premi Mohammed. Um, she's also a Canadian author. Um, and um, she, she writes novellas mostly that have some biological, biopunk kind of stuff to them. And uh, it's called The Annual Migration of Clouds. Really good stuff. Um, I also love to, um, uh, there's Vajra Chandrasekhara, the, the Saint of Bright Doors. That's a really good one, too. You should check that out. Okay. There you go. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, I, I would like to read more, but uh, I do find stuff um, from what other folks are, are really excited about right now. 
And you always post on your on your website and on your Instagram and newsletter great recommendations. So yeah. usually if Kevin suggests a book, uh, it usually finds its way onto the shelves here. So FYI. Yeah, yeah, in, in my newsletter, if you guys subscribe to my newsletter, I, every single time I say, here's what I'm reading right now and here's what I'm reading next. Um, hey, do you guys have Star, uh, Starling House here by, by Alex Harrow? We do. Actually, we have it signed, I think. You guys, you should get it uh, because it's so dang good. And uh, I'm reading it now, too. I just, I just bought it last night in Albuquerque because um, everybody's talking about it. It's ridiculously good. And Terry Brooks just talked about how he just finished it, and it was the most amazing thing. So um, you guys should check it out for sure. Uh, and she also wrote the 10,000 Days of January I was telling you about earlier. So Doors of January, sorry. I have a question from somebody online, if that's cool. cool. Hey, um, online yeah. person. And it's kind of related to what you've been talking about. Robin asks, uh, what is the earliest book you remember reading? Um, you might have to ask your mom about that one. Yeah. Uh, how, uh, how the monster early... at the end of this book. How early did your imagination kick in, and is there a particular author that inspired you? Three questions. Uh, to, an author that inspired me to write, or she doesn't specify. Well, if we if we take that part, the first, the the author that inspired me to write, it would be Alan Dean Foster for a lot of it because he wrote about um, talking otters and stuff like that in his Spellsinger series. So talking talking animals and stuff that was a big deal for me, right? Formative. And then we have his science fiction, which has a pink uh, the Pip and Flink series, where he had a a, a redheaded dude with a. a, a mental connection to his flying snake and they got in lots of trouble together so there you go you can see how that influenced me too right so so that was formative in terms of uh you know what wound up becoming the iron druid chronicles later on um so and he's a, an author maybe you haven't heard of but he's been around forever he's got over 120 something novels he's that's a career man so yeah uh is this Payson now i thought it was prescott um but yeah awesome I, I got to meet him. Alan Dean Foster, huge body of work. So, um, all right. And then the other parts of those questions was like, Let's where, see. when yep. did I? What is the earliest book you remember reading? Yeah, it's probably the, the monster at the end of this book. But um, later on, like I, I remember being obsessed with the Hardy Boys books that are all written by ghostwriters named Franklin W. Dixon. Right. So uh, mom used to get those for me for years and I would just read all of them. So um, then uh, let's see. Uh, then, then the, what was the other part? I'm sorry. Yeah, I know it was a three-parter. Um, something about, you know, when did your imagination oh. first kick in? And I guess, when did you also start writing? Well, I didn't really want to, you know, start writing until college, but, um, I was always writing different stuff, but when did my imagination kick in? I don't know. I was, I was bored. I was reading early. So I was bored in kindergarten, like Jack and Jill went down the hill. I'm like, dude, I know. This could be Grab improved, me. right? But, um... So I was I was bored a lot, and so my imagination probably kicked in around then because I was like, how do I entertain myself? Because this little early primer book is not entertaining me at all. So um, that's probably when it was kindergarten. Yeah, that sounds good. Awesome question. Thank you, Robin. Any others? Yes, back there. It's Nick. What's up? Did I decide? Did I decide what? I'm sorry. No, see, that's 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 very very up to debate, 
because some people love Granuel. So, so, so the fact that, in fact, how you feel about Granuel says a lot, right? So, because, so, so, so that she is designed to be a character who is, she's basically somebody who knows what she wants and she goes out and gets it, okay? And she doesn't make apologies for that. Now, she also has some irritating uh, aspects of white feminism, um, and that, that was also an intentional thing. She can't be perfect or whatever, but from the beginning, she was never going to be the, the girl that the guy got at the end. That's not who she is. And, and she is um, always just always intended to be you know, a very independent person. So some people don't like when women do whatever they want. And, and, and they get mad about it or whatever. Um, and then maybe they have other beefs with, with, with her, so on and so forth. But uh, some people were blindsided by the decision, but they probably didn't read Besieged because there is a short story in Besieged called Cuddle Dungeon. And then right after that, Granuel story where Flittish comes in and says, Perun broke up with me because of something I did. And she says, if Atticus ever does that to me, I will break up with him. Well, guess what? He did it, and she did. She followed through. So it, it was. I did telegraph what was going to happen. I promise. I set it up, but a lot of folks maybe missed it. So it was always. She was actually always very consistent in who she was, and it, none of that to me was a surprise. Um, so I, I did what I could to to telegraph that this was going to happen. So anyway, there you go. It, it, it's, a, it's a very difficult uh, question or, or a thing to, to think about because it is, she was intended to be somebody that uh, was going to be either loved or hated or whatever. She, she was supposed to be somebody who was a complex person and not everybody likes everybody else. That's just the way it is. <laughs> so there one you go. One or two more questions and then get sure. you signing. Yeah. I think we had somebody all the way over here. Yeah. Hello. Uh, so changing tax a bit, um, I'm just noticing you had earlier comments about putting stuff in the novels that kind of relates to you, kind of really personal mental health and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, how do you kind of navigate that boundary as a writer between kind of what you put out there, both in terms of like your touring and everything and what you put in your writing that's very personal? Well, a lot of it is just is uh, like different versions of it's an awesome question, by the way. Um, it's different versions of stuff that actually happened to me. I'm not really putting in anything that really did. Um, the the only thing that's maybe the closest thing to something being real was uh, in Hammered, when Atticus goes to visit the widow McDonough before he takes off to Asgard, and he wants you know he says goodbye to her and all that kind of stuff because he realizes I might not get another chance, and I've had enough I've had this happen enough in my life where I don't want to pass up a chance to say goodbye when I have it, right? So so that was uh, something that was based on you know, what happened to me. Uh, the Widow McDonough is based on my grandmother and I didn't get to say goodbye. So that was, that was what that was all about. But otherwise, they are, they are things about just processing, um, di different ways of processing the different um, traumas that we all experience. And people approach that processing in different ways. All of them are, you know, some of them are more effective than others. Um, but as long as people are trying, you know, to, to, to get through it, even if maybe they'll make a stumble or two, but maybe they'll uh, but keep on working on it and they'll, they'll get to a better place. So, awesome question. Yes, Sean. Final question. <laughs> Just wanted to ask the, um, how you organized and how you kept track of all of the 
individual people in these in the series. Did, was it was it just kind of an ex, uh, expanded uh, organization of what you've done previously in your books, or is this something you had to kind of write a write a new process to to keep everything facts organized and character straight and yeah uh, okay so for this particular book when I have to write in different voices what I would do is I would set up a, a program called Scrivener it allows you to create tabs and put different files in each tab so I could color code it and name it here's Hanuma all of Hanuma's chapters here's all of Penn's chapters or Goran Mogan's chapters and then what I could do is I could write in those chapters and, and look at them read you know read them review them edit them whatever in in order and so that they were like one continuous story for me, even though the reader is going to see them all broken up over time, I can work on them all at the same time. That way I'm in the same headspace, you know, while I'm working on it and I'm not jumping around from head to head. So I, I'm very consistently sticking with a certain voice for a while while I'm working on it. Does that make sense? So I had to do that. That I don't usually need to do that for urban fantasy because there's only two or three people that I'm worried about. Whereas with this one, I had a lot more. So, um, but otherwise, yeah, other details, I annoyingly just kind of keep it in my head. Yeah. My wife still gets mad at me uh, in, in, to become a teacher in uh, Arizona. You have to take a constitution test. And you could take a course for it and then, you know, get your grade and then take your test for that. Or you could just pay your fee, take the test. And I did that second one. And all I did was we were in Kingman and I had, we were driving to Flagstaff to take the test and I just read the constitution in the car and that was all, all the prep I did. So she took a whole semester course. I read the constitution in the car and passed and she's still pissed at me for that to this day. So um, yeah, that that's unfortunately a uh, thing. Like I just kind of keep it in my head and, Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.